0: Hello, man. Welcome to the Men's Global Livestream. My name is Dusty Davis, and I want to welcome you into session two uh, in our series where we're walking through the book of Ephesians, Ephesians for Every Man. It's a series that we've entitled Identity Crisis. That's kind of the subtitle, right? Ephesians for Every Man, but we're looking at the crisis that every man faces as he tries to decide who it is that God has created him to be uh, and who god is right the identity of of me and the identity of of god because as we learned in our first session everything we do grows out of who we are or who we at least believe ourselves to be and we also looked last week uh, last session at our at our real identity in christ at what scripture says about who it is that we truly are specifically the new identity that we receive after salvation the identity as son son and daughter of the king forgiven restored set free from not only the penalty of sin but from the power of sin in our lives right and it's so important that we understand who we are in god because if the enemy can convince us that we're not who we think we are or who god's word says we are if the enemy can get us to question who it is that the scripture says that God himself is, then everything in our life starts to unravel. Now, I want to encourage you all, whether you're going through this by yourself, whether you're listening to this podcast on your way to the office, or as you're out for a run, or whether or not you're studying through the book of Ephesians with a group of men, I want to encourage you, submerse yourself in the book of Ephesians while we are studying. In between our sessions, reread the chapters. Right During the series, you and I are only going to be doing a bit of a flyover. Right? It would be as if we were over the Great Barrier Reef, and all we have time for is a snorkel. Right? Now, we're going to be picking up a lot of the main themes. And at certain points, we're gonna dive down to take a look at the beauty of God's word at the, at the reef that we're exploring on this encounter. But I'm so confident that there are other places in the book of Ephesians that the Holy Spirit wants to grab a hold of you and wants to speak truth into your life right now. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truth. He makes God's word useful in our lives. So my encouragement is, give him the space and the time to do that. So often we move at such blinding speed with so many windows open, you know, like on our computer monitor that, that God's voice doesn't have the margin to get in. So pray, meditate on the word, talk to your brothers about it, submerge yourself in the word of God, let it do its work. Let the Holy Spirit Allow the scripture to come alive. Allow him to make it useful, practical, applicable. By, as we said, our our part is to give him the space and the margin and enough quietness of mind and body to do that. Amen? All right. As we get in, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for this session. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for the truth that it will change our lives as we submit to it. God, your word is truth allow us to pause our hearts and minds in this moment to come before you to sit humbly under the teaching of your holy spirit lead us lord we ask in the name of jesus amen amen all right man grab a bible turn with me to ephesians chapter 2 now as you're turning there i want to draw your minds back to perhaps one of the greatest cinematic masterpieces that the 80s ever gave us I'm talking about The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride, it's such, such a treasure in so many ways. A perfect movie in many regards. Mandatory viewing from anything that was produced in the 1980s. If you remember the movie at all, you'll remember when our main hero, Wesley, was being tortured by his enemy. Right, and, and all of the envy and all of the malice of Prince Humperdinck was being poured out on Wesley as he was being subjected to torture, right, through this evil machine, right, that, that sucked life physically from you. Right? And it had only been tested in small amounts, but in a rage, Humbertink throws it all the way to the roof, stealing what what seemed like the rest of Wesley's life, leaving him dead at least we thought he was dead it appeared as though all hope was lost but as the hilarious and brilliant sort of healer played by the incomparable billy crystal gave us hope as he exclaimed he's only mostly dead mostly dead What a a completely hilarious and moronic and commonly used thought. It's impossible, right? It's impossible. Because as we all know, when it comes to life and death, there are two boxes. There's alive and then there's dead. There's no levels of death. There's just alive and there's just dead. And yet, many of us forget who we were when Jesus Christ found us, we forget the state that we were in, or we might even wrongly think about some of the people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus as just being mostly dead spiritually. And I bring this to your attention because in today's passage, in Ephesians chapter 2, the very first verse reminds us that that simply isn't and can't be true yet we're so tempted to believe it. Take a look at the scripture. This is Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one. I'm gonna be reading from the New Living Translation. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. There is so much truth in the first couple of verses. Look at how simply and plainly and impactfully Paul lays all of this out for us. He just speaks plain truth to us as God's men. He says, when God found you, you were not mostly dead. You were not a little lost. Your life was not somewhat off course. You were not misinformed or misguided. Spiritually, you weren't sick in need of just a little bit of rejuvenation and healing. You and I were dead and in need of resurrection. This is who we were spiritually before the power of Jesus Christ entered into our lives. We were dead spiritually. We were without hope, without life. There was no future. We were lost. The story was over. And look at the reasoning. He goes on to tell us exactly why it was that we were dead. It was not because of naivety. It was not out of, you know, childlike innocence, and it wasn't just because we hadn't yet heard and accepted the gospel. Why is it that we were separated from God? As Scripture says, objects of His wrath, according to this passage, because of our disobedience and our many sins. And we don't like to think that about ourselves, but we were living in open and hostile and disobedience to God. It was our own disobedience that led to our sin, which led to our spiritual deaths. Remember, sin is always progressive that way. There is no sin in your life or my life, whether we're aware of it or not, that does not desire to grow up, to get strong, and to take over. All sin wants to go pro. All sin is progressive in our lives. It's like cancer that's metastasizing. Sin is not okay to remain in part of our lives. Scripture is just too clear about it. All sin is going to grow and progress and always lead in death, death of relationships death of hope death of connection our spiritual death and how does sin enter into our lives well it begins as temptation it begins as temptation which comes from where well according to our walk through the book of james right in our series james for every man we were reminded that all temptation comes from our own fleshly desires Our fleshly desires that lead us astray while the world is on the sidelines cheering us on. The enemy will tempt you and I to sin and then stand back and accuse us for sinning the moment after. This is the cycle of sin that led to our death. And it's so important, guys. And the reason I'm just sitting on this is because we have to remember who we were. When Christ found us, because we will always be tempted to believe that we have moved beyond sin. But scripture tells us that while we've been set free from sin, we're also encouraged not to go back into slavery. Right? We have short memories. We often forget we do the same things financially, right? You look in the financial markets and we, we, we just cycle through these different poor decisions because we have short memories. It's been true of God's people. God rescues his people. He calls them out of bondage, slavery, sets them free. And it takes about 15 minutes before they start complaining and pining for where? For Egypt, where they were slaves. They forgot where they were when God found them. You and I are prone to do the exact same thing, not only in our own lives, but as we look at people who are struggling or who are outside of the faith, and we can think that we didn't used to be just like them. At one point, we were them. And guys, this moves us forward as God's men in some really important ways, this truth, this knowledge, because it will give us patience as we minister to the men and women in our lives that are still in bondage to sin. When we remember that we too were in their space, it allows us to be patient. It allows us to start looking at people's lives and not see the gap between where they are and where we'd like them to be, but to see the progress, to see how far they've come. It gives us patience as we minister to them but it also gives us hope. Hope as we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform them. For God to do His work in the hearts and in the lives of the people who are being brought alive in Christ. He's setting them free as they get get healthy, as they get strong, as they get going, as we watch them move through that cycle. And it also gives us ongoing purpose. It gives purpose to our lives as we endeavor to be used by God to spread the good news everywhere. Remembering that is going to give us patience, it's going to give us hope, and it's going to give us purpose. This passage, Ephesians chapter 2, begins by painting a very sobering and painful reminder of what our lives looked like before Jesus. But it doesn't leave us there. Right, It talks about this beautiful spiritual transition that happened in the life of everyone that has been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. As it piles all that on, as it talks about who we were, it then says, but God. For God's man, this is at the very middle of all of our stories, but God. I was once controlled by anger and outbursts, but God. I was once consumed by greed for the desire for more. It just never seemed as though I could get enough, but God. I was once a slave to sexual sin, to pornography, to alcohol, whatever it was, but God. This is the transition that begins to tell the story that we used to be one way, that he's transforming us to something else. And at the very middle is this man from Nazareth named Jesus who changed everything. You know, my favorite testimony in all the scripture is the blind man, right? The blind man, they ask him, they're, they're hounding him. The religious leaders are trying to accuse Jesus and they just keep hounding this man about how he was healed and what happened. And all he keeps reiterating is, look, I don't know. I don't know who the man is or where he's going. All I know is I used to be blind, and now I can see. And at the middle of that change was this Jesus guy. But God. We were dead in our sins, in our disobedience, right? Shaking our fists at God. Verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that, reminder, Even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved, for He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. This is the core of the gospel this is where our good news takes a sharp left term from every other religion out there because religion is always the story of bad people desperately trying to connect with a good god by somehow making themselves worthy by somehow elevating and attaining secret knowledge by checking the boxes by giving and going and doing and all these things are motivated by this great sense of fear and inadequacy right that someday I'm going to be accepted, but I've got a huge weight on my shoulders, and I've got to be worthy when the day comes. That's what religion says. But the gospel is the story of the one true God coming towards bad people, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, changing us. The gospel is the exact opposite of every other story out there that God makes us new. And this scripture lays out, and what was his motivation? The richness of God's mercy and the depths of his love. Praise God that he rescues us based on who he is and not on who we are. You know, we read John 3.16 from the time we enter into church as a little kid. And sometimes it's easy for us to believe, I get it, I get it, God loves the whole world. God loves all of us. And we negate the fact that God loves each of us. Because we base his capacity to love on our small human understanding or on the way that we love people, right? We love people that are lovable. But the truth of the gospel is that God loves us based on who he is, not on who we are. Because of his rich mercy and deep love, the beauty and depth and fullness of God's mercy, right? Which means that we don't receive the things that we deserve. Right, that we're with, withheld the punishment that we deserve as objects of wrath. We deserve nothing. Yet in mercy, God kept that from us, and then displayed the depth of His love in His grace by offering Himself on our behalf, and then by treating us excellently, by blessing us with the very righteousness of Christ. And you can see the change in our status. We literally went from dead to alive, death to life. It says we were raised from the dead. This is so critical for us to remember. Because just as we were dead, now we are alive. We weren't mostly dead and we're not mostly alive. We were dead, we're now alive. The change has occurred. The change is that profound. Your salvation, my salvation, it was achieved in a moment. And I love that in the NLT, in the middle of that passage we just read, there's that parenthesis just to remind us, guys, and it was by grace, through faith, that you were saved. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so none of us can boast about it we can't boast about it look at how clear that is how many ways can paul lay that out for us more simply and more clearly it was by grace that you were saved and and when were we saved the moment we cleaned our lives up the moment that we joined a bible study when we got rid of all of our bad habits, when we started tithing and going to church, when we didn't miss a men's live stream every week. No, we were saved by his grace. It says when we believed. At the moment of belief, and it's like Paul already knows where their mind's starting to go in that moment, right? Because the enemy's always at work. He's even trying to weasel into our salvation and go, man, did you do a good job by choosing Jesus? Good on you, smart. Paul already counters that lie and you can't take credit for it. Don't think it was because of something you guys did. It was a gift from God. It happened in a moment, and it was a gift, and both of those are important for us to live out, that we're not earning our salvation, and it wasn't something we did. It happened in a moment, and it was a gift. And I love that Paul is offering us some challenging reminders all throughout chapter two. Remember, we just saw in chapter one that he wanted to remind the meters of us that we should never forget who we were when Christ found us. It's how this passage starts out. We got our new identity in chapter one. Then chapter two says, but I want to remind you who you were if you're going to live properly out of who you are now. And he reiterates that we too were sinful and lost whenever we're tempted to talk about them, whoever they are. Those, the people that make those kind of choices, the people who live in that kind of sin, remember you and I were them. We were them. Living according to our own selfish desires, sinning in disobedience, that's who we were. Never forget it because the moment we forget that, we start to diminish the cross. We don't tolerate sin. Right, you know, Peter asked that. Peter asked Jesus, so should we just keep on sinning so the grace can abound? He said, no, 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 Peter. Don't walk down that road. But whenever the enemy reminds you of your sinful past or comes with the voice of condemnation, allow the cross to grow. You know, when the enemy convicts me of sin, condemns me, tries tries to elicit shame in who I am, I turn to the Lord Jesus because the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn, he convicts. He makes us aware of the sin in our life that God wants to lovingly root out of our life. And when I'm reminded of I'm sinful, when I'm reminded of how how filthy my heart can be, I turn to the Lord and say, I praise you, God, for the beauty of your cross, for its banner over my life that you rescued me from that and from that and from that. Paul goes on and says, never forget who you were, Never forget that salvation is not a reward for the stuff you've done. It wasn't something you've earned. And that's an important reality for God's men because we can't earn God's grace. We already have it. It's not that we can't earn it because it's coming. We have it. We don't go out trying to obtain God's love. We go out in confidence because we have it. But the Christian life is not without effort. The Christian Life is without earning. It's full of effort. What we believe creates deep conviction within us and a deep desire to please our Father in heaven as He transforms our heart, as He makes us new, He gives us new desires. You know, that scripture is often misinterpreted. That as we delight ourselves in the Lord, He'll give us the desires of our heart. It's not saying, so if you hang out with God, He'll give you the stuff you want. It's a reminder. That as we abide in Christ, he's going to change our hearts so that we desire new things. A Christian life is full of effort, but it's completely devoid of earning. If salvation's a gift, the only right response is thank you. What do you say when you open a gift? You say thank you. When we've been given much as we've been given from Christ, our life should look like one big thank you. It would be as if a man gave his life for us on the battlefield. Nothing we could do would go back and earn that. But we would try to honor that man's memory. We would try to live our life in such a way that looking at our life would look like a a thank you. That's how God's man lives in light of the cross. But we have to remember, do you remember in session one, we said that our new identity gives us a new trajectory, that we're God's holy people Right, so now we become followers of Christ, that that who we are then starts to inform what we do. We were saved for a purpose. There's intentionality behind our salvation. God's man is intended to replicate. What was the singular charge that Jesus left the disciples with? To go and make more disciples. If you read in the original text, it actually had more of a connotation like, go make disciple makers. Go and make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples until I come back, boys. It was progressive. It was keep making disciples. It wasn't just the charge for the twelve. Or the 72, it was the charge and is the charge of every single person who's ever come into a saving relationship of Christ. Because if the gospel is true, it has to be shared. And not out of duty or compulsion, but just the reality that Christ offers life eternal. If you had the cure for every disease, would you keep it to yourself? Or would you try to get everybody in the world their hands on the cure. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Here's that intentionality again. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The good works that we were created for boil down to giving God glory and making him known giving God glory and making him known. That's the calling on the lives of God's men. So often we ask God, what is your plan for my life? What is your plan for my life? And we somehow make God's plan and God's will primarily about us. What if God's man said, God, what is your plan, period? And how do I bend my life to support that? How do I make You known, how do I give you glory? But let's not then take the gospel and this charge to go share it into one of works, right? Where there's like this expectation of performance, because we can read that, that we're supposed to make disciples and then wrongly think, okay, once we're saved, now God has this expectation that I'm supposed to go do something incredible for him. Okay, let me clarify that. If God wants to use us to accomplish his will, let's agree that's an awesome thing. That's an incredible, it's a beautiful, that's a humbling thing. And right away we can be tempted to do something that God just didn't intend for us to do. Whenever we seek to get involved with God's plans, God's will, what he's up to in this world to join him in the work, we are tempted to think that we're supposed to do something for God instead of doing something with God. We're tempted in our flesh to try and achieve things for God, and it comes out of a great heart, but it's misguided, rather than entering into things with God. When we seek to do things for God, right away we try to inject our plans, our purposes, our abilities into the mix. Because if we're the ones who've got to get it done, then we'll often try to come up with the how, the why, and even maybe the what. But that just wasn't God's intention. Do you remember when Jesus called the first disciples in Matthew's account? Matthew chapter 4, it says this, starting in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I love thinking that that was at least like a little bit of sarcasm on Matthew's part. And they were there fishing. Well, because they're they're fishermen. Anyway, verse 19, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Whenever God invites us to join him, even here at the moment of their calling, come, follow me, we have to remember, he's not asking us to try to do something for him apart from him or apart from his power. Look at how beautiful the calling is for the first disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you. Follow me and I will transform you. I will fill you with power. I will fill you with purpose. It's not going to be you trying to do something for me. I want to work in you and on you and then through you. He tells the disciples that you guys are going to follow me. That's your part. And then I'm going to do something incredible in your lives. That's my part. God says to us, Follow me and I'll change you. I'll change everything. These men, it said, were fishermen. Remember, they were fishermen because they were fishing. That one word actually gave so much context, so much identity to these men because fishing was their goal, right? Getting fish was their aim. It, it made up all of their thinking. It's how they planned their days. It's why they watched the weather. It's how they used all of their resources, right, on, on more materials and boats. It was not only their identity. it was their goal it provided their income it's how they would have identified themselves i'm a fisherman you would have known who they associated with and jesus said i want you to give all of that up that was their call and he said i'm going to change the aim the goal the identities for your life you're not going to fish for fish anymore you're going to fish for people and that'll be your new aim And your new purpose that'll be why you get up in the morning that'll be that'll be how you spend your money that'll be how you use your resources that'll be how you plan your life it's going to become who you are you'll no longer introduce yourself as a fisherman you'll say i'm peter i'm a fisher of men a fisher of men but god's plan we do well remember didn't start at that moment with the disciples god brought the disciples in to play a role in a plan he was already well underway with. His desire, his plan to redeem all of mankind. So remember, when God calls you, when God invites you to follow him, when he starts to reveal things in your life where he wants you to get involved, he's not asking you or me to start something on our own or in our own power. Our God is always at work. He's just inviting us to join him And Jesus was such a beautiful, perfect model, shockingly, of how to do this, of how to follow God, of how to take the truth of Scripture and apply it to our lives, of how to live our purpose as God's men, how to live our identity, how to let that be our aim and our goal and what what directs our life. And he laid it out in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus explained to his followers, this is how I want to work in you and through you. This is your part. In the the following of me, in the fishing for men, in, in the call that I have, that purpose that I have for your salvation, for you, this is how I want to do it with you. Chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, remain in me and I'll remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those are identity statements, boys. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow. Jesus laid it out. I'm gonna tell you guys how I want to work in your life. And Jesus is laying it out again for you and I. We want to follow after you, God, in the spaces and places that you've put me. I know there's things you want to do. I know there's people who are waiting on the other side of my obedience. I know there's people that you want to bless, and there's people that you want to draw to yourself. Use my life, Jesus. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. He said, you want to accomplish my will? He laid out very clearly what our part is simple and profound to remain in him that's our role that's our role to walk step in step hand in hand with God the Father trusting his voice and following his leading in every single moment depending on his strength to sustain us looking for his purposes to prevail and to give our lives direction Allowing his truth to speak identity and worth over us. Jesus was modeling something so incredibly countercultural, so incredibly counter Western. Jesus prioritized connection over production. Jesus prioritized connection over production. Even when it comes to God's will, to God's very plan for this world, he's more interested. That we would stay in step with him, abiding, remaining. When we think of God's will, don't just think of a list of of tasks or to-dos or items that we're supposed to check off or stuff that God wants us to complete and then bring back to him to receive our, our spiritual gold stars. It's not what he's looking for. Jesus even lays out what happens in our lives when you and I try to do that. When we focus on Him, when we remain in Him, He does incredible things in us and through us. But alone, we don't have the power to achieve things for Him. We never will. Remember what He said, apart from Him, we can do nothing but when we remain connected to our Creator, when we keep in step with the God who loves us and created us and rescued us, then we start to bear fruit. Guys, when we're trying to figure out God's will for our lives, when it comes down to to choices and decisions, when to speak and when to stay silent, when to go and when to stay, remember that it's our connection to Jesus that's gonna provide all the strength and all the direction and all the power and all the provision. It really provides everything. If you feel as though God's been silent, stay in the place of connecting with Jesus, just stay there. Spend time with him every single day, sitting in his presence. Remember, connection over production. Don't check off the box and try to burn through the Scripture, you know, speedily checking off that you've read this many chapters and verses. Sit with God. Ask Him, what does He want to say to you? Listen in times of prayer. God, we want to hear from You. But God's calling in our life, it didn't just bring us to life. It didn't just give direction to our lives and purpose to our lives it also brought unity into our lives. It brought several different kinds of unity. It brought unity with Christ, right? It says we're united with Christ, but it also brought unity with our brothers in Christ. Unity with Christ and then unity in Christ. We are now united with Christ. It's such a deep theological truth. Look at verse 13. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Remember those before statements. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. See, the cross made us one with Jesus. It brought us into unity with him, but it also brought peace and unity amongst God's people. See, the cross is is the great unifier for christ himself has brought peace to us right it says in this passage he brought unity he united the jews and the gentiles into one people this passage says if the cross of jesus is what unites us as god's men with our brothers in christ how could we let anything else divide us how could we let anything else divide us If the cross is what unifies us, how could race divide us? How could social class divide us? How could our political parties divide us? How could our differing views on religious traditions, how could our hobbies or the things that we enjoy to do, if any of those things are big enough to divide us, doesn't that mean that they're bigger than the cross in our lives? If the cross is what unites us, Why would we ever let anything separate us? Jesus never expected his church to be uniform. The church always has been the most diverse group of people in all of society. When the church launched under Roman rule, it was the first place where members of different social classes were together. It's the first place that members of different races were together. It's the first place that men and women shared similar value. Together, it's always been this beautiful melting pot of unity. Because above all of it was the cross of Christ and nothing else was big enough to separate the church. God has gone out. He's called all these people to himself and it says that he brought unity between the Jews and the Gentiles, between God's chosen people and basically everyone else whenever we use that term in scripture. It says the Jews who were near and the Gentiles who were far away. But now in Christ, both have been brought near and there's a reality that we need to cling to as we look to who we were. It's that both, the Jews and the Gentiles were lost. It reminds me of perhaps my favorite story that Jesus ever told. When Jesus wanted to convey what his heart was like towards the lost, right? What he thought and felt about sinners, right? So uh, the Jew, the Gentile, those uh, close, those far, what was God's heart towards those who were lost? And so Jesus told a story. And he starts off by saying, There once was a man who had two sons. Now Jesus proceeds to tell a very famous story. There was a man who had two sons. Both of them were lost. One was lost far away. One said, Dad, give me all of my inheritance, which was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff. And he went to Vegas. And he partied and drank and used it all the way and when the money was gone so was his crew and he was left alone and then he thought even the slaves have it better than this i'm gonna go home and maybe i can work for my dad maybe i can earn his pleasure back he was lost very far away but we saw that as he came back, as he turned in repentance, as he recognized who he was apart from his father, it says his father started running towards him while he was still a long ways off. So one of the sons was lost far away. But remember, it says that the man had two sons and both were lost. One was lost far away in open and wild and reckless sin. The other was lost up close. He was lost in pride. He was lost in arrogance. He was lost in the lie that he had somehow earned his father's pleasure, was deserving of his father's pleasure, and that his father owed him something, and that his brother was far beyond the father's grace. The Jews and the Gentiles, both lost. One lost up close, one lost far away. But here's the beautiful thing. The story is not about the sons. The story is not about the boys and who are lost. Like I said, the story started off by saying, there once was a man who had two sons. The story and its beauty is about the man, the father who had those lost sons. The word prodigal that's used in that story, the prodigal son, it means lavish, it means extreme. It's not about the one son's sin. A true prodigal is God's lavish and extreme and over-the-top love for his two sons, both. It's extravagant. Because in this story, we see the picture of a father and his sons of a family. That's what God created when he rescued the Jews and the Gentiles. When he brought them together in unity, he created a family. So now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are His house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. We're carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. This is the unity that's created in God's family. Right the before and the after, we were strangers and foreigners. now citizens. We were lost, orphans and outcasts, now family. We were sinful and exiled and alone, and now we are God's holy people. And in all of it, He is the one building us into a house, into a family. It's He who makes His appeal through us to the world by the power of His Holy Spirit. I guess the only question is, men, will we join Him? Will we join Him? Will we be about the Father's business? Will we exchange our lives for the one who exchanged Himself for us. Remember, God desires to do something through us, by his power, according to his plan. What is our role? To submit. To let the knowledge of who we were drive us forward that someone else living in that same place would be brought close, would experience the transforming love of Jesus, that we as God's men would take God's truth like a pervasive plague of hope and cover the entire planet in it. You know, Jesus at one point told his disciples that he was the light of the world, right? That he's the truth, that he's the light of the world. And then later he said, you're the light of the world. Passing the torch, not making us gods, not making us equal with him. But once we've received his truth, that light, the Holy Spirit is now in us and he expects us to go out with it, to light up the entire world. But what value does light have in a lit room? If we're called to be the light of the world, we can expect to go to some dark places. Are you ready? Are you ready to go where God wants to send you? Are you ready to step into the places that he already has you, trusting his power and his purpose? Well, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the places that you have put us as your men. Like a strategic general or a coach covering the field, God, you've put us in homes, in neighborhoods, in offices, in classrooms, in courtrooms, in boardrooms, in operating rooms. And your purpose, God, is that we would be a light a light that brings glory to you and a light that makes you known in this world. God, anchor us in the truth. Remind us of who we were before you saved us. Allow that to give us patience and hope and let us move out in purpose to the people who are still lost. God, I pray that you would continue to remind us that we are one family, that all of us who call in the name of Jesus were once lost and all of us are now found. And if the cross unites us, God, never let anything be big enough to divide us. We love you. We offer ourselves to you for your plan, for your purposes, for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'll see you next time.